Well, good morning. It's weak. Good morning. morning. Y'all need some more coffee. Awesome. Happy New Year. Glad you made it. How many people stayed up to watch the ball drop, clock turn? Nope, don't do that anymore. Uh, Just go to bed and wake up the next day. But for those of you that did it, awesome. I'm glad you survived. Uh, It's hard to believe it's 2022. I remember being a senior at UNC Chapel Hill when I thought the world was going to end at Y2K. And somehow or another, we're still here. I don't, I don't know. The last two years have been interesting. Uh, 2020 and 2021 simultaneously felt like they lasted 17 years each. And at times, they went by super fast. But I am not sad to see them behind me. And many of you are not as well. But here we are in a brand new year. Another lap around the sun together. Uh, there are uh, a lot of exciting things about a new year. Uh, we have a lot of times a renewed anticipation and optimism and excitement and things might be different, things might be better, uh, positive changes that we might make, uh, routines we might establish, commitments that we might seek to keep and persevere in and endure in. And I think there's this tangible feeling of freshness that comes from seeing the calendar turnover. And so speaking of freshness, uh, let me go ahead and address the elephant in the room because I know what many of you are thinking Pastor Jason, those are some fresh shoes that you have on. And you would be correct, 100% correct. These are some fresh shoes that I am wearing today. Uh, they were an awesome, generous Christmas gift from my sons, Thad and Hudson. We used them their own money that I didn't have to pay for. So I didn't buy my own present. They actually worked and bought me these shoes. And it is only the second pair of Jordans I've ever owned. The first pair was in sixth grade. And I bought them with my own money. And I could jump a lot higher and run a lot faster as soon as I put them on. I'm too old now to try to see if I can do those things again. Uh, I actually didn't even wear these across the parking lot. I put them in a bag, walked across the parking lot when it was raining, and put these on once I got into the building, because I do not. They've given me lots of instructions about what I can and cannot do with these shoes on. So you may never see them again. They may go in my closet, and I may never release them again uh, for anybody else to see. But they were more excited than I was, I think, to see me open them. So here we are. Um, I did promise them on Christmas morning that I would wear them the next time I preached. So here you go. Um, now, it's a little bit different fit. Normally, it's a flannel shirt and cowboy boots that I'm working. Today, it is Jay's, and I'm repping the goat, okay? So who's the goat? Okay, so make sure there's no heretics in here that say something other than Michael Jordan, okay? It is Michael Jordan, and so it only makes sense today to be repping the goat on my feet when you're about to hear the goat of sermons, okay? And I'm telling you, with all humility and honesty, that today, the Lord's Day, January 2nd, 2022, you're going to hear the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. You're like, wow, Pastor Jason, that is some bold words you're speaking. That's awful presumptuous. That's a big declaration. Can you back it up? I'm 100% sure that today I can deliver on that promise. 100% guarantee you that today you're going to hear the greatest sermon ever preached or ever will be preached. How do I know that? And how am I so confident that I can deliver on the goods? Because today, we are going to take some time on this brand new year to sit at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to very intentionally, strategically, humbly sit there and listen from his lips to the greatest sermon ever preached. Okay? So we're going to take the posture of a learner and a disciple this morning. We're going to be challenged, convicted, compelled I hope to a deeper level of obedience this morning as we let the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount rule and reign over us. So this morning, this is my prayer, is that we would cling to the promise that God's word is indeed living and active. 
that his word, as the Bible says, is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces our hearts, even reveals our intentions, that it never returns void. But his word always accomplishes that for which it is sent out. And the Bible says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. And so here's what I know for sure this morning. You don't really need to hear from me very much. You don't need to hear me give you a catchy New Year's talk about how to have your best year ever in 2022. You don't need me to be up here and rah, rah, rah you into resolutions you likely won't keep once February comes. You don't need me up here to tell you how to accelerate your personal potential or build your personal brand or increase your social media influence in 2022. There's other people that can do that better than I can. That's not my job today. What you and I need to hear this morning is God's voice. What we need this morning in this new year is more of God, his word, his presence, and more of his grace. You see, this year, as John the Baptist says in John 3.30, we need to see Jesus become bigger and we become less. We need to see the gospel go deeper into our bones, the fruit of the spirit be more manifested in our lives, and the word of God to take up a residence in our hearts and our minds in 2022 so that we are equipped for every good work, prepared for every obstacle, and ready for every divine appointment God gives us. What we need to experience in 2022 is just more of Jesus. As Pastor Brandon said last week in the video, if we ever want to see breakthrough in our community, in our personal lives, in the lives of our families, in our city, it's going to come through hearing and obeying the word of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So go ahead, if you'd like to be that person that kind of beats me to the punch, go ahead and start making your way to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to pick up in chapter 5. And this morning, don't, get, don't be shocked. It's going to be a little bit different. Because in just a second, I'm going to pull up this stool, and we're going to sit down, and I'm going to read out loud the entire Sermon on the Mount for us this morning. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So 111 verses, I know. I've timed it. I know how long it's going to take me in my redneck English and pace to read through it. And I'm going to tell you, it's far more worth your time than anything that I have to say. So go ahead and make your way there. We're going to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. And here's some background and some context that I think behooves us to understand before we jump in. So in your Bible, just real quick, look in your Bible. Go to the end of the Old Testament and you get to the book of Malachi. In your Bible, how many pages are between the end of Malachi and the start of Matthew? Just kind of look. Maybe a page or two blank. So what most of us don't realize or think about is that represents 400 years of silence. When God's word ends in Malachi, before Matthew starts, God went silent for four centuries. No more prophets, no one. He did not send anybody to speak on his behalf at all for 400 years. And during that time, the people got anxious because God was not speaking. They thought God had abandoned them. Many of them began to live however they wanted to live. As this divine silence kind of sat over them, they didn't really, uh, many of them didn't remain faithful. Some of them remained faithful, waiting for God again to speak to them. And then as Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God came into the world. The word became flesh when Jesus burst on the scene and broke four centuries of silence when he let out his first cry from the manger. God came into the world and broke the silence. And in that moment, when Jesus stepped into space, time, and history, everything changed. When you start flipping through the first few chapters of Matthew, it talks about the birth of Jesus, which we often read during Advent in December, which we did just uh, this past month. But then Matthew doesn't really give us anything about toddler Jesus or 8-year-old Jesus or 13-year-old Jesus or 18-year-old, even though I wish he did. 
Like, don't you want to know what Jesus was like when he was like 15? Like, we don't get any of that. We just kind of go from Jesus in the manger, maybe a little bit about little baby Jesus. And then we hear John the Baptist come on the scene. Jesus show up, get baptized at the Jordan River, goes into the wilderness for 40 days to do battle with Satan. And that's kind of where we pick up. And then he begins his earthly ministry and calls the disciples to follow him. And that's where we're going to land this morning. As these men gather around Jesus outside of Galilee, crowds begin to form. They've heard about Jesus They've seen him, and now they're gathering together to hear the first sermon that Jesus is going to preach. And here's the deal with most people's first sermons. They're terrible. Okay? I don't know about Pastor Brandon or Pastor Charles, Pastor Matt, but my first sermon I would like no one ever to hear because it was not executed well. I was probably really fidgety. I probably talked 3,000 miles a minute. And so it's tucked away in an archive somewhere, and no one will ever hear it because most first sermons are overstuffed, and they're just really grasping at straws. Jesus is the exception. His first sermon is one for the ages, and it has resonated throughout history and will continue to echo through all eternity. So this first sermon is on this mountaintop outside of Galilee, and this sermon is still being read and studied today, and we're about to discover as we listen to the words of Jesus that his words are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago, and the words are so full of beauty and power and authority. But here's what I want you to know about this first sermon of Jesus also. It was preached to a large crowd of folks many of which were already committed to Jesus. They had left their families, their careers, their possessions. They were all in with Jesus. Many of them had been touched by his healing hand, some from demonic possession, and they had seen compassion and mercy come their way through Jesus. They're endeared to him, and they're captivated by him. And so now they're following him and listening to him and hung on every word that he said. But they weren't the only ones in the crowd that day. So on that crowd that day also, were some folks who weren't really converts and weren't necessarily followers yet, but they were skeptical of Jesus. And they were there because of FOMO, okay? And what is FOMO? Fear of missing out, okay? Just to bring up to speed on the lingo of the day. Uh, They were there because of FOMO. Here's Jesus. I'm curious. I'm skeptical. Let me hear what he has to say. But then there were some other folks there in the crowd that were angrily suspicious. And who were they? They were the religious leaders of the day. They're not real fond of Jesus. They are men who are puffed up with pride and they're very pompous and they like being the source of authority and instruction to all the people and they take a lot of pride in their position of elevation amongst the people. Keeping the rules and keeping the laws and dishing out this, that, and the other. They love the place of reverence and respect they had in their community. They were the big ballers and sock callers of their day and they loved it. Very self-righteous, very legalistic, and this new upstart rabbi is a threat to them. Don't really like him, don't like what he's saying. So they want to lean in, not because they want to obey, because they're trying to find a way to undermine him, to undo what he's doing. So those are many of the folks in the crowd that day outside of Galilee as Jesus is on that mountaintop. So you have the, the devout and committed. You have the captivated and curious. You have the skeptical yet lingering. And then you have the legalistic rule keepers. And my guess is in this place this morning or watching online is we have a mix of all those here this morning. Some of you are devoted followers. Some of you are curious and captivated. Some of you are skeptical. And some of you are great rule keepers, but you're far from Jesus. And this morning, I pray that as we work through the greatest sermon ever preached, that we will really, 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 really hear the words of Jesus clearly. That we'd be so posture in our hearts and our minds that we would take in every word that he has to say as if we've never heard them before. And they would be fresh to us. 
and that they would fall on our hearts with all of the intended power, weight, and beauty from which he preached on that day. So this morning, here's what I hope that happens. I hope that as we sit here, we feel like supernaturally God has transported us back to the mountainside outside of Galilee, and we're sitting there, and the cool grass is under our feet, and the warm sunshine is on our face, and I pray that we will lean in with all the intention and all the uh, focus that those early crowd must have felt that morning and did as they heard Jesus preach the sermon. And that his word this morning would grab our hearts and our minds and set us on a trajectory in 2022 of actual, true, humble obedience to God's word. Here's what I want to do before I read. I want you to close your eyes for just a second. Just take a moment to do what Psalm says, which is to be silent and know that he is God. And as you close your eyes in your own heart, I just ask that you would pray these, through these four things. Ask the Spirit of God right now to search your heart and let you know if there's any sins there that you need to confess right now and do so. That you would ask the Spirit of God to look deep into your heart and to reveal any anxiety or worry that is lodged there. That you'd ask the Spirit of God to look into your heart and reveal all the doubts and all the frustrations that are embedded there. And that you would ask him to reveal your burdens and your resentments and any bitterness that is in your heart this morning. Father, we do come before you this morning at the dawn of this brand new year. A year that is a good gift from you. We come this morning desiring to reorient our lives and ourselves to your voice and to your word. We want to anchor this morning all of our hope, our joy, our peace in your promises, in your provision, and in the perfect presence of your son, Jesus. We want you to give us eyes to hear and a heart to believe your truth. So we ask this morning that the spirit of God would through the word of God Reveal more clearly to us the Son of God, whose name is Jesus. Amen. And again, I know your ears can't see, so if you caught on that, we're going to ask for ears to hear and eyes to see, not ears to see. If your ears, if your ears see, then I don't, we need to talk after we finish this morning. Matthew 5 through 7, and here's what I'm going to do, because this is what Jesus did. He sat down. So I'm going to sit down, and I want you to grab your Bible, if you have it. I want you to follow along. It'll be on the screen. And I'm going to read this passage to us. And I pray that you'd be free from distraction. Most of us have never heard this in its entirety. We take it segment by segment. I preached 15 sermons through this passage years ago. There's just something about taking it in context and hearing it. And I pray that God would do something in our hearts as we listen this morning. Matthew 5 says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them uh, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, you tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you to sin, you cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Amen, Jesus. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. For truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, you go into your room, and you shut the door, and you pray to your fathers in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fa- that their fasting may be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? I mean, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather to barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, then neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and yet your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your fathers in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others will do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are very many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly to ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits or grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does will my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Can you imagine how astonished they were when he finished that sermon? Jesus just taught the crowd full of many devout followers and skeptics and those who were curious about him and the religiously self-righteous a message that they had simply never heard before. He spoke with power and authority. It says there that they had never heard anyone speak like this and they were astonished. That word astonished means to be amazed at, to marvel out, or to be confounded by. I think all those sentiments were stirred in the hearts and the minds of those gathered at Jesus' feet. Some were so excited and encouraged Others just had their minds blown, trying to make sense of what Jesus just said. Others were so ticked off and seasoned with anger at Jesus. See, it was a mixed bag of emotions. You see, when Jesus preached, people were a lot of different things. Unaffected is not one of them. If we ever find ourselves unaffected by God's word, we're at a dangerous place. I like to imagine Jesus finishing that sermon, and had he a mic, he'd have dropped it. Be like, boom, homies. Their breath was taken away. His words had grabbed their hearts, challenged them, even probably provoked them. 
You see, Jesus in his very first public sermon laid down what it means, what it means to be a true follower of God. He said, this is what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a son and daughter of God. This is what it looks like and it smells like to be a part of the kingdom. But you see, we have to be careful when we read the Sermon on the Mount that we rightly interpret what Jesus is and is not saying. Because a lot of folks will look at the Sermon on the Mount, especially those first 12 verses that we know as the Beatitudes, and they convince themselves that Jesus is laying out some sort of new Ten Commandments. That he's laying out this newfangled code of conduct and morality that if someone should sufficiently follow this, they could get into the kingdom. That Jesus is saying, here are all the holy hoops you jump through to get saved. And that Jesus is declaring, if you live like all that I just said, you get to become a Christian. But context like location always matters. And the context for Jesus' words matter. Because his words are primarily to those who are already professing disciples. He's speaking to those who had declared that they would follow him. He's trying to feed them and move them to deeper, deeper places of worship. That's why Jesus very carefully and specifically chose a word to begin the Sermon on the Mount that he will use nine times in the 11 verses, and that word is blessed. You see, when Jesus says the word blessed, that's not a subjective happiness. It's not situational happiness. It is an objective declaration. Jesus is saying is blessed is the person who has God's approval. Blessed is the person who knows God and is known by God. So he's saying being blessed is a present day reality and a future reality as well. So Jesus says, I'm ushered in the kingdom. And if you would trust me and submit to me, you get a foretaste of it. But the full fruits of the kingdom won't come till later. It's the already, but not yet. The kingdom has come in with Jesus. It has continued to come in, and it is to come. So when Jesus declares the, the realities of Beatitudes, he's making this profound, wonderful announcement to the disciples, to those who were followers. He said, how fortunate are you that you are chosen and loved by God? How fortunate and blessed that you've been ushered to the kingdom, that you're going to experience the power that you're going to get to see the glory and grandeur of the kingdom of God now and in the fullness in years to come. So right off the bat, let's get this very straight. Jesus is not beating around the bush for nobody. He's not pulling punches. He's not tickling ears. Jesus is not saying, here's a sugary, everybody gets a trophy, everybody's awesome, and everybody goes to heaven sermon. He is not saying, here's your health and wealth and prosperity. He is saying very clearly, here is a line of demarcation. I'm not creasing my shoes, Thad, don't worry. Here's a line of demarcation. This is in the kingdom. This is not. There's no fence. You're in, you're not in. This is what it looks like if you're in. This is what it looks like if you're not. He's not pulling any punches. He's saying in great detail, this is what the life of the believer should look like. And I think this beginning of this new year, it behooves us to understand this year what our lives should look like, how we should live, what we should declare and demonstrate through our words and lives and actions. And this is not just for the exceptional super Christians, you know, missionaries and pastors because they're paid to do this and they're professional. Jesus is saying, if you know and love me and you say that you're a follower, this better be how you're living. Everybody, without exception. I want you to think about the magnitude of the things that Jesus said. He said, there is a superior righteousness that surpasses even your revered scribes and Pharisees. 
A superior righteousness that is demonstrated not just by externally keeping the law, by the letter of it, but by understanding that the law was given just to show you how sinful you really are. That your heart is given to lust and anger and retaliation and idolatry, that you don't love people well, and that you are selfish and prideful. And that God expects a perfection that is, that is, perf- that is just perfect and blameless and unattainable on your own. See, Jesus warned his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be given over to the applause of people. Don't try to impress people by how holy you are or how mature you are or how generous you are. You be careful how you live and do most of what you do in secret and how you pray and how you give and how you fast. You do it all to glorify God, not to get the approval of anybody else. He said, this is how you pray when you pray. This is how you approach my Father in heaven. This is how you trust him. Doing so with a heart full of humility and a forgiving spirit. He said, disciples, where's your treasure? Is your treasure rooted on earth or is your treasure stored up in heaven? Are you all about the stuff of the world or the things of God? Are you invested your time, your talent, and your treasure in what will last or what won't last? He said, don't be anxious about life, about food, about what you drink, about where you're gonna go because you have a good father in heaven who loves you and cares for you more than you ever would imagine. He knows exactly what you and I need before we ever ask him. And he's faithful and he's trustworthy. And then he admonished him, you better not be hypercritical or hypocritical. And what does that mean? Don't you hastily judge other people because you know how stinking sinful you are. You better remove that daggum log from your eye before you start pulling the speck out of somebody else's. You better be gentle and humble in how you correct and instruct, knowing you're a sinner in need of grace and you need the gospel as much as anybody else. Then he said, you better be obstinately persistent in your prayers. Seek that for God, plead for God to help you grow, to sanctify you, to conform you more and more into the image of Jesus. He said, you better treat people the way you wanna be treated and not just people you like. Because it's real easy to treat people you like and like you nice. But you better treat people who are your enemies and you better pray for them and you better serve them and you better love them and you better love your neighbor as yourself. That's what being the kingdom looks like. Church, believers need to hear that junk today and actually love people who disagree with them. There's so much disunity in the church of Jesus Christ, it's pathetic. We've got to learn to love people even if they disagree with us. You don't have to like them, but you got to love them. Correct? That's not, you don't get a choice. My wife doesn't always like me, but I know she loves me. Right? I'm not always likable. I mean, I'm adorable and lovable, but I'm not always likable. But we are supposed to love those who are even considered our enemies. So when Jesus says, here's the rubber meets the road, practicality of a path of discipleship, here's what it looks like and here's what it's gonna cost. You're gonna look different than the world, you're gonna talk different than the world, you're gonna behave and love and serve differently than the world, and if you're following me, hear me church, you will be misunderstood. You will be maligned, inconvenienced, and you will be often uncomfortable. And if you're never any of those things, then you're likely not following Jesus very closely. Because following me means taking risk, making sacrifices. Following me means embracing and actually living out your identity as salt and light. 
So Jesus says, you know, following me to get to me, there's this narrow path and it deviates from the rest of the world. This path is hard, but rewarding. It's full of satisfaction and joy and peace. But I tell you, not everybody who says they follow me actually follow me. There's many that will be on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not X, Y, Z? And what is his words? I don't know you. Because those who know Jesus have been rescued by his grace will bear fruit in accordance with salvation. And it will be growing as time goes on. You see, for those in the crowd that day who were followers, legit disciples, they were all in. Jesus' words were sweet and sobering and encouraging and challenging and assuring and weighty. And it grabbed their hearts and they were bolstered and they were moved towards obedience because Jesus was crystal clear. But there were others in the crowd that day who were not followers, who were close in proximity to Jesus, but far from Jesus in their hearts. And I think those words from Jesus that day were terrible and beautiful. They were terrible because as Jesus taught them, they realized very, very quickly, that's not true of my life. They realized very quickly that the kingdom of God that Jesus just spoke of was so unattainable and far from them that there's nothing they could do. They heard Jesus talk about lust and anger and murder. And even though they hadn't done those things with their hands, they had done them all in their hearts. And they were faced with the reality, I am unworthy to be in this kingdom that he has just described. And they heard Jesus talk of this superior righteousness that they would have to exceed even the Pharisees, religious leaders, if they could ever enter heaven. And they were cut to the quick when Jesus said, you must be perfect, not by your standards, but by mine. You don't have to be better than your neighbor. You have to be perfect. And when those words hit them, they just had to feel hopeless and helpless and like, I have nothing I can do. All my rule keeping is obliterated. I don't measure up. I can never measure up. This standard is too stinking high. But there is beauty in that reality. There is beauty in what Jesus said. And one theologian summed it up this way. Jesus looked at the people and he said, there is a mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look at the mountain, which which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself and that any attempt to do it on your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. You see, the beauty of Jesus' sermon primarily to his disciples was that there also is an embedded invitation for others to get on the team. See, the only requirement for entering the kingdom, the only prerequisite for, for becoming a follower, the way to become the blessed person Jesus describes is found in the very first sentence where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, after Jesus says that, there's 107 more verses. And if you skip that first one, you've missed the point. There is not one single person who will be in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. So being poor in spirit is a starting point for everything Jesus describes in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything else flows from it. It is the only way anyone gets into the kingdom. The condition that must be met is to come before God the Father, with an overwhelming acknowledgement of your own desperate need and unworthiness. And that is good news for helpless sinners. Because not only is it easiest, but it's also the hardest condition of all. What do I mean to that? Because all too often, we want to come to God and we have this list of demands we've written up. You do this and I do this. God will make a contract. 
or I have my personal bill of rights. This is what I'm willing to give up. This is what I'm not willing to give up. Or I'll have my bank account and my calendar so clutched tightly that Jesus better not touch them. But God says, the only thing you can bring me is your nothing. You come before me empty, confessing that I and I alone can satisfy you. You lay down your rights, your demands, and you submit to my authority. You come to me like a beggar desperate for food. Towering before me with such a poverty of your soul and knowing that you're so bankrupt, there's nothing to do for yourself. That is where it all starts. That you are so helpless and hopeless that unless outside intervention comes your way, you got nothing going for you. And that is the best news of all. Because help did come. Outside intervention did occur because the one who preached this sermon is the only one who could ever perfectly fulfill everything he declared. Through his perfect, sinless life, his sin-satisfying, God-glorifying, once-for-all sacrificial death, and his victorious, Satan-kicked-in-the-teeth, grave-defeating resurrection. The only one who could do it. He said, I and I alone will fulfill all the requirements of the law on your behalf. I'll fulfill all the prophets. I will perfectly obey the Father through all my thoughts, actions, and deeds. When Jesus described the attributes and characteristics of the blessed person in the Beatitudes, he did so knowing that he was the only blessed person. The only one who would, would, that no one else would ever known experience the blessedness apart from him. And when Jesus, hear me, went on that mountaintop outside of Galilee and preached that first sermon, he knew that the only hope for sin-stained men and women like you and I to ever be able to live out of the words that he has proclaimed would mean that he would go up a very different hill and have his legs and his arms stretched out on a different mountaintop. And on that mountaintop, he would not be outside of Galilee, but outside of Jerusalem. And there would be a crowd of people who would come around him not to take the posture of a learner, but take the posture of an executing crowd. And they would crucify him and see him suffer and see him die for their sins and not his own. Jesus, the king of the universe, the one who dwelt in unmatchable splendor and riches, left his throne in heaven and came down and lovingly, willingly, sacrificially gave his life up for sinners. That's why 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus took on our poverty so that one day you and I could enjoy his riches. He came so that those who are poor in spirit, those that know that they could never get to God on their own, that those who realize they're bankrupt without God, that their, no, that their need is so far greater than anything they could ever do or supply, that they would turn to Jesus and find in him all they've ever longed for. That all their desires will be satisfied, all their hopes fulfilled, all the promise of God are finding their yes in Jesus. That is why the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest stinking sermon ever preached. Because it points everyone who hears it to the heart of the gospel and to the God of all grace. And to grasp the heart of the gospel, we have to go back again to the first words of Jesus. So my question to you this morning is, are you poor in spirit? Is that your posture this morning with the Lord? That's the starting point of knowing and experiencing God's grace in your life. That's the starting point of salvation and redemption and reconciliation and peace with God. It starts there in a soil of humility and desperation before God acknowledging our need for him. Some of you this morning need for the very first time to come before the Lord and confess your need for him and trust him as your savior.
Those of you that have walked with Jesus for a long time, hear me. I don't care how long you walk with Jesus. I realized when I was writing the sermon, I've been a believer for 34 years. I got saved when I was three, if you're wondering. No, I, thir- 34 years I've been walking with Jesus, and if I ever get past that first beatitude, I'm done. Need to be born spirit with God. You got to lay aside your pride. To remind it that you need Jesus every single day, that you depend on him every single day, and that your identity is in him every single day. That your worth is solely rooted in what Jesus has done, and there is zero you can add or take away from that. That on your best and your worst day, Jesus loves you exactly the same because it's not based on what you 2022, then embrace the posture of being poor in our spirits. But here's how I'm going to close. I'm going to close exactly how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount with a direct challenge to obedience because I feel like on this first Sunday of the new year, we have 363 days in front of us. It seems apropos to have a challenge. Just like the folks on the mountainside 2,000 years ago, this morning, you and I have heard the very same sermon from Jesus. We have heard the very same words as they did that day. You heard it in redneck dialect. They heard it in Aramaic, so it's a little bit different how you heard it. But the the challenge is the same. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? You see, Jesus did not preach that sermon, nor does any preacher preach a sermon. Hear me. Outdid yourself today, masterful illustrations. Your metaphors were on point. Your pace, your cadence. You didn't do anything weird with your hands. Like, you did great. You kept my attention. I was so entertained today. Your jokes were funny. You were winsome. Nobody... Nobody's up here to entertain anybody. We're here to hear God's word because here Jesus did not want one single compliment. He wanted conviction and commitment. He did not want admiration. He wanted action. He did not want them to commend him. He wanted them to carry out what he said. He didn't say, hey, give me some applause for my effort. He goes, why don't you daggum apply what I said? I don't need you to give me a sin innovation. I need you to be sacrificial in your obedience. I'm not happy, nor am I pursuing lukewarm, fence-riding fans. I want you to be a sold-out follower and get on with it. That's why he ended his sermon like a boss with these words written in the form of a parable that I'll end with. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because they've been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Two houses. From the outside, they look exactly the same. Same roof line, same chimney, same curb appeal, same floor plan, same windows and shutters. But in reality, they're vastly different from one another. Two houses look identical and they represent two different men and who seem to be similar in every way. They appear to have a good marriages and good families and good jobs and good cars and good 401ks and good kids. They probably go to the same church. They get, sing the same songs, listen to the same radio station, like the same sermons. Their children go to the same schools, probably go to the same gym, get the same venti ice caramel macchiato from the Dunkin' Donuts on Robin Hood and Renata like I do. They probably shop at Costco. But Jesus says these men are vastly different. You see, one is wise and one is foolish. You see, one of them has built his life on a solid foundation, and one has built his life on a shaky one. You see, one of these men is wise, and he's built his house on the rock, and one man is foolish to build his house on the sand. You see, one man is wise because he hears my words, and you know what? He obeys them. 
That's wisdom. The foolish man hears the very same words and he knows his own way and disobeys. You see, the only way, hear me team, as we close, the only way to differentiate between those two houses and those two men is to watch what happens when the rains fall and the winds blow and the storms beat against that man's house. The only way to know who has their life built on a rock and who has their life built on the sand is to observe what happens when trials and tribulations and hardships come. And if you don't believe anything, 2020 and 2021 showed you hardships are going to come. Obstacles are going to be on your path in 2022 when all will be rainbows and unicorns and blueberries. Right? You will laugh. You'll have fun in 2022, I'm sure. But there's going to be pain and hardship and difficulty in the year to come. The question is not, will the storms come? Will the wind blow? It's when. And when it comes and when the storms rage, what will be revealed about your and I, the life and our foundation of our life? Will it reveal that our life is rooted and anchored and set upon Jesus who is the immovable and unbreakable rock? And that you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will endure and persevere and remain steadfast because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? Or will the rains and the wind reveal that we are not anchored in Jesus at all? That our lives are built on sand that is unsteady, uncertain, and we will find our lives crumbling underneath us because the storms are too much. You see, my prayer is that over the next 363 days, we will have lives as individually and as a church body marked with radical obedience to Jesus and his word. That we will follow him more closely and listen to him more intently than ever before. That we will go deeper in our understanding of the gospel that we will learn how to walk with another intentional gospel community better. And that it will be said of us that we spent 2022 not just reading and not just hearing the word of God, but we spent 2022 actually obeying, believing, trusting, doing, sharing the word of God where we live, work, and play. And you know that January 1st, 2023 is a Sunday? My prayer is that on that day, Lord willing, the creek don't rise that we will come together in corporate worship and we will look back with grateful hearts to celebrate the goodness, faithfulness, and kindness of God. And on that day, we'll testify to one another that he is our rock, our refuge, our strength, a very present help in times of troubles. And we will rejoice together for his goodness. Here's how we end today. There's no better way than going back to the greatest sermon ever preached and praying the greatest prayer ever given. And I know we learned the Lord's Prayer in different ways, and so we're going to do the one that's written in the text in Matthew chapter 6, it'll be on the screen. So I'm going to ask you that you would pray this along with me as we close. This version does not end with what we're used to ending it with, so we'll add that in. Uh, for yours is the power of the glory. We know that part. It's not in this particular passage. But let's read this prayer together as we close. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.